This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 140, John Fielder, Adventures and a New Book on the Yampa River. Hey, college students, yes, we are still taking applications for those of you who are interested in a mini-internship to help promote the Adventure Sports Podcast on your college campus. Get in touch with us. Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com, click Contact Us, and send us your resume. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. I am excited again today to have John Fielder with us. John Fielder was one of the founding guests of the Adventure Sports Podcast way back in Episode 7, and he shared a lot about his lifetime of of filming the wilderness, primarily in Colorado and elsewhere. But John Fielder is Colorado's premier wilderness photographer. He has many, many works. I'm going to read a quick little bio here. John Fielder has worked tirelessly to promote the protection of Colorado's ranches, open space, and wildlands during his 33-year career as a nature photographer and publisher. His photography has influenced people and legislation, earned him recognition, including the Sierra Club's Ansel Adams Award in 1993, and in 2011, the Aldo Leopold Foundation's first achievement award given to an individual. Over 40 books have been published depicting his Colorado photography. Information about John and his work, of course, can be found at johnfielder.com. John, welcome to the program. We're glad to have you here today. Well, I'm glad I did okay the first time, Kurt. Thanks for having me back. And um, it's actually 35 years now. I started Medicare last August, so two more years (laughs) of the career. Two more years. 35 years. That's fantastic. So John is back on the show today to talk to us about his latest project. He has been documenting the Yampa River Basin, and he and Patrick Turney have teamed up to put together a a beautiful book all about the Yampa River. And let me give you a little bit of history on that. The Yampa River is the last free-flowing river from source to its confluence, over 250 miles of free-flowing river. It's in the state that it was much in for thousands and thousands of years, and there aren't many rivers in the U.S. left that can make that claim. So John has put together a beautiful book, um, Colorado's Yampa River, Free-Flowing and Wild from the Flat Tops to the Green, and it has uh, over 150 scenic, historical, and then and now photographs, 172 pages, just an amazing book about this river. So, John, why don't you take it from there? Tell us about this project and what this book is all about. Well, a few years ago, uh, Governor Hickenlooper, in his first term, beseeched the Colorado Water Conservation Board to um, do studies on where Colorado is going to get all the water that it needs for the coming decades in the face of... Um, what will be somewhere between three-quarters of a million and a million new people moving here or being born here in Colorado. So we'll go from effectively 5.4 million people to somewhere between 8.5 and a 10 million people by 2050. And in the face of global warming and all those people, um, we don't have enough water to go around. And 
Uh, Pat Tierney, my co-author, and I want to make sure that the Yampa River in northwest Colorado, which is effectively undammed except for some dams on the heads of the tributaries that don't affect the free-flowing nature of the river and the water's undiverted, that the Yampa stays that way. And um, so we want to insert this book into the discussion as the state begins to figure out how it's going to mitigate that uh, supply of water that it will need for municipal, industrial, agricultural, and use, and then how much water do we actually leave in the river, in all rivers in Colorado, um, to maintain the natural environment, ecosystems, and you know recreation and industries like river rafting, hunting, and fishing that depend upon water and rivers. Wow. Well, John, I want to go into more detail about the book a little bit later in the show here, but... I wanted to highlight a couple of things. You did several trips um, on raft and on foot and otherwise to document this river um, for this book. And it sounds like you've uh, spent a lot of time on this river for many, many years. Um, You mentioned that you first started floating on the Yampa back in the 1980s and that this project effectively kind of kicked off around 2013. Um, But that's, that's a pretty good period of time there. We're talking about over 30 years that you have been experiencing the Yampa River. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to raft down that river. Well, the Yampa is effectively northwest Colorado. You know, I think a lot of your listeners know and I've had fun in and around Steamboat Springs, whether skiing or um, hunting or fishing. And it's two counties, effectively, Route and Moffat counties, Rio Blanco County, too, that uh, contain the headwaters and the Yampa itself. And, you know, I've photographed the ranches, I've photographed the wilderness areas that are the headwaters of the Yampas for really 40 years, and I've rafted the Yampa for um, 30. But Pat and I decided to see, you know, the whole thing, all 250 miles of the drainage and the ecosystem in one fell swoop over two years. So that meant uh, llama packing with Gus and Hector, the llamas, um, in the Flat Tops wilderness. And, and I had spent um, a lot of time in the last 40 years, backpacking and llama packing in the Mount Zirkle wilderness to the north of Steamboat. But very few people, including both Pat and me, had ever rafted from Steamboat Springs to the Green River, which is a couple hundred miles of pure um, free-flowing river. And that was the novelty of this project, was getting to see what is inside all of those cottonwood trees that your listeners have um, witnessed as they've driven on Highway 40 from Steamboat Springs West to to Hayden and then uh, Maybell and Craig and on to Dinosaur National Monument and into Utah to Vernal. Um, There's that mass of cottonwood trees almost the entire way south of Highway 40, and within that is this river, but the river uh, penetrates private property, ranches, Steamboat in northwest Colorado is unique because of its uh, ranching heritage. And and, uh, you don't really have access to that part of the river because it's private property. So Pat and I figured out a way to to see the whole river within those cottonwoods and the ecosystem um, thereof. So that was the rafting trip in unknown waters. And then two years in a row, he and I, as we both had done many times before, individually rafted the classic Yampa Canyon of Dinosaur National Monument um, from the put-in, which is called Deer Lodge Park, all the way to Echo Park, um, which is where it meets the Green River, you know, beneath 3,000-foot-high sandstone canyon walls and a rock called Steamboat Rock. And then the green continues 
south out of Dinosaur all the way down to the Colorado River meets the Colorado just west of Moab, Utah. Um, so a remarkable two years and uh, lots of stories thereof and, uh, and a book now that will make pretty clear why this place must stay the way that it is now forever. You know, a few episodes back, I mentioned in a, a trip report about climbing Mount Parnassus about the value of our water and how rare it is, I think, in the universe that places exist where there's water in all three states on one planet and how critical that is for life. But I want to add to that, you know, if you want to know how healthy a a bit of land is, an environment, an ecosystem is, one of the best places to find out is to go look at the water and see what's in the water and how it's doing, you know, in a given watershed. If we look at the water... It's kind of like, you know, when you go to the doctor and they draw some blood to see if you're healthy or not. We can look at the water in a river and see what's happening in that watershed and the health of the entire environment. I think we don't always realize how precious and unique and rare of a resource it is to have the water cycle that we have on this planet, to have the watersheds that we have with these with these rivers, and what it does to the environment when we start damming them up and things like that. Um, the water really is a lifeblood of the planet. And I know, John, that you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, tell us a little bit about the Yampa and the state of those waters. It's a free-flowing river, which means that it may peak after the snows melt in June, somewhere between 12,000 and 19,000 cubic feet per second. It effectively is undammed and undiverted, but some of your listeners may know that Stagecoach Reservoir and Lake Catamounts south of Steamboat are reservoirs on the main stem, the Bear River of the Yampa, but the amount of water that uh, they impede is so little compared to the overall flow of the entire river with all of its tributaries, such as the Elk River and the Williams Fork of the Yampa and the Elkhead River and the Little Snake River. But those minor dams and reservoirs don't affect the ecology of a free-flowing river. The, you are right. Um, you know, in some of my slideshows, I quote a song sung by a man who your listeners who are too young to remember, um, but maybe some do, a man named Perry Como. And there was a famous song um, about love and marriage and how love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage and you can't have one without the other. And that's analogous to land and water, as you um, commented, Kurt. Um, You really can't have healthy ecosystems and a healthy landscape and healthy creatures without the water that... um, is part of that ecosystem, and not one of the two is more important than the other. They're symbiotic, and they go together. And manifestations of that on the Yampa, um, probably the most conspicuous artifact of dammed and diverted rivers is that um, shrub called the tamarisk, which is also called salt cedar, and it's an invasive species that was brought to America in the 20th century to fortify riverbanks so that there was no erosion. Um, Parenthetically, the easier way to do that was to make sure cows didn't get down into the rivers and the creeks and eat all the foliage, which is why rivers eroded. But be that as it may, the tamarisk now is invasive in western river canyons, southwestern river canyons, and um, it's there because the rivers don't run freely and those shrubs and other invasive species don't get washed away in the spring anymore by big water flows from snowmelt. And so that's one of the more conspicuous artifacts of uh, damming up and diverting rivers. And one of the others is just simply the loss of biodiversity. And that's why we have four endangered fish species 
um, in the Colorado River headwaters, including the humpback chub and the pike minnow, which was used to be called squawfish, which grew to be six or seven feet long and was almost extirpated because it was used and ground up to be fertilizer for farm and ranch meadows. But the headwaters of the Yampa is the only place that the eggs can be laid and the eggs will actually hatch because of the way that silt builds up on riverbanks because of flood stages of rivers and that silt um, in places like the Grand Canyon cannot form any longer um, because of damming of that river. And that's another reason why Grand Canyon National Park does artificial floods in the spring now to try to duplicate the natural processes. It's fascinating when you think about what rivers do and uh, it, it amazes me when I, I, I read an article recently about some changes in the uh, Yellowstone area. I, I guess the, the situation was that the the wildlife had been trampling the river and destroying the vegetation that was stabilizing the banks, right? And so as the wolf was reintroduced into Yellowstone and the wolf began uh, preying on the animals when they would come down to drink. They chased the animals off so they didn't just trample the banks. And what they didn't expect is that by bringing the wolf back, it stabilized the river and the river became healthy again. And then the whole, the plain that the river flowed through became healthy again. And then, of course, the the elk population, the deer populations became healthier again. But it was kind of a symbiotic thing. You know, the the wolves restored the balance which protected the river, but in turn, the river um, renewed the the biodiversity and, and lush life of the valley once it was no longer, you know, being punished and, and damaged by this overgrowth of, of the wildlife as in the elk and the deer and the buffalo, the bison. So it, it's everything's tied together, I guess, is what I'm getting to here. And we have so changed the river systems in our nation and around the world for that matter that I think we lose context with that. So what you're talking about with the Yampa here is that we have a chance to keep a natural river the way that it has always been. Well, you, you're up to, I know the documentary that you're talking about, and that is um, a relevant observation in two ways. First, as you just said, everything in life on this planet and maybe in the solar system and the universe is connected, that an action here creates a reaction over there. And yes, um, extirpating predators affects the free-flowing nature of a river. And that's an interesting analogy to how ecosystems become emasculated by diverting water or damming up rivers. It's analogous to, and literally, as you just said, to um, removing predators from ecosystems where that also, just as does damming and diverting water in river systems, reduces uh, biodiversity and total populations of living things, you know, by 99%. And we know that because of the converse, that when we reintroduce predators like wolves and allowed grizzly bears to propagate in Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks and other northwestern U.S. areas, that all of a sudden that carcass killed by the wolf became food for everything from birds to reptiles to amphibia to uh, single-celled microbial life, which case in point is 90% of all the living mass, the biomass on Earth is stuff we can't even see, and all of that is promoted and fed by um, the work of predators. So damming and diverting rivers and eliminating predators are conspicuous uh, things that we can address that uh, affect biodiversity almost more than anything else um, that we know. Wow. 
Yeah, it's it's an amazing thing when you start thinking about how much we are beginning to learn about the natural balances of our planet and how humanity um, overstepped those bounds. They thought of of the wild places as something that had to be conquered and tamed and didn't realize how critical those places were for our own health and well-being and the health and well-being of, of the entire biosphere on this planet. So anyway, what you're doing at the Yampa, go ahead. Can I say something tongue-in-cheek? You bet. No, it's it's not our fault. All soon to be not nine billion by twenty fifty. The new numbers are that there'll be nine point eight billion human beings on the earth by twenty fifty. It's not our fault because we're biologically programmed to perpetuate the species and if that means extirpating and making extinct thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of other life forms on Earth. That's what we're programmed to do. But um, outside of tongue-in-cheek, you know, I do, like a lot of people, think that uh, we have the capability to know right from wrong and to care about the future and to care about what kind of life our grandkids can enjoy on this planet. And we can make a difference. And I'm an optimist that we can and we are. And if we use our heads and our brains with technology and common sense, that uh, we can reverse all the negative trends that we see on the planet. Hey, I'm with you there. I really believe that now that we're beginning to understand the importance of it all, that we can be a part of nature again not the enemy of nature, but a part of nature, and we can work in that symbiosis and, and make a, a better system that, you know, where the, the future of the planet is brighter. And it can happen. And I think there are a lot of people out there who, who really believe in that. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Hey, River Rats, you've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yampa River on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the Flat Tops Wilderness to the confluence with the Green River and Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green.
John, let's shift gears a little bit. Will you describe for our guests what it was like to float? Just pick a day. I mean, you you spent years on this river, but what was it like to float on the river? What does it look like and feel like? Well, that stretch of river that very few people ever do, 125 miles from downtown Steamboat Springs to Maybell, Colorado on Highway 40 to the west, Pat and I launched, me and my 12-foot orange NRS kind of single or double-person raft, and Pat and his purple kayak at 6,000 CFS from the library in downtown Steamboat onto the Yampa, and uh, knowing that there would be about uh, 16 road bridges and railroad trestles within the next 30 miles that we had to get under, and that at 6,000 CFS, the clearance would be minimal. So we had um, Kent Bertrees who uh, is the manager of Steamboat Powder Cats up in Steamboat Springs on Buffalo Pass and also president of Friends of the Yampa Scout and eyeball some of the distances between water level and bottom of bridge for us. And he said before we launched, well, I think you'll be able to get underneath most of these bridges, but there's (laughs) one where uh, you might want to take out on river left. Well, uh, in the end, Pat got under fine, but I had to dive down into the well of my boat three times approaching these bridges and hold my oars perfectly horizontal and three times my oarlocks cleared the bottom of the bridge by less than an inch. And then oh, one time we had to line the boat where we actually let the boat go by itself under the bridge with a rope attached and pick it up on the other side and continue on our way. So that was one of the challenges uh, for the first 30 miles. And after that, um, you know, it was what river rafting is to your listeners, uh, solitude and peace and quiet and biodiversity for the next uh, 100 miles or so. But we did encounter um, another issue, and that was a diversion dam called the Maybell Diversion Dam, which uh, west of Craig, Colorado, in what's called Juniper Canyon, which was almost dammed up in the 1980s, there's, uh, uh, the river course has been changed to allow water to flow through a canal and a, and a ditch to get to Maybell to the north. And the way the rocks have rearranged makes the water flow at what we call a class four rapid over these rocks when it's running at 13,000 or more cubic feet per second. And that required a river right scout, you know, for Pat and I to try to figure out how we're going to get through all the flipper holes um, without actually flipping, which is not that much fun. And uh, so those were the two great challenges in terms of uh, the art of river rafting. The rest of it was enjoying biodiversity. Nice. I was blessed as a kid. My dad had somehow found a uh, Army Reserve raft of some sort, and we used to go floating down a scenic river in Oklahoma, and I just fell in love with it. And then, of course, in Colorado, I've I've done kayaking and rafting. And one of the things, John, that I like about it is the way you can just drift right by wildlife. And, you know, you can't walk up on them like that. But in a, in a boat on the river, they just don't expect you to be there, and it's quiet. And you can get so close and see them kind of undisturbed. It, it's really a neat experience. Well, guess how many people, Kurt, we saw in this usually unrafted stretch of the river from Steamboat to Maybell, 125 miles. And in six days, we saw no one else on the river. All we saw were ranchers in their meadows um, preparing for hay season and all those creatures you alluded to from over 20 inhabited bald eagle nests with both chicks and adults, Mm. the red-tailed hawks, 
to great blue heron rookeries, to white pelicans flying and nesting in and along the river, to six-month, maybe even three-month-old elk calves enjoying the floodwaters of the river, to merganser ducks, to deer, to red-winged blackbirds. If your listeners want solitude and want to see what you alluded to, put a boat or canoe on in Steamboat Springs and five or six days later take out at uh, Maybell, Colorado. Very cool. So the majority of the, of the Yampa River is Class 2, some Class 3, and you alluded to some Class 4 at certain flows. Um, what can people expect as far as the difficulty? From Steamboat to Maybell, um, Class 2 is, there's not even Class 3 on the river. There's the Class 4 at high water, which would be Class 2 or 3 at low water in Juniper Canyon. So the major um, divisions of the river would be Steamboat, all the way to Craig, Colorado, and there's one public land there called the um, Yampa River State Park, which is a great place to put in and take out. There's a few other places where you can do that. And then you get to Craig, Colorado, and the river slows and meanders through that community. And then the next canyon is called Little Yampa Canyon, and it's a BLM, not wilderness study area, but it could be someday uh, classified as a wilderness area or wilderness study area, but it's basically three days and nights of not high sandstone canyon walls, but canyon walls that are spectacular in total solitude. And the next canyon after Little Yampa Canyon is called Juniper Canyon, and it's similar. The walls start to get a little more high, and sandstone starts to permeate the geology. And the only challenge there is that um, one diversion dam at high water. And then uh, the river bends to the north, and it crosses Highway 40 just to the east of Maybell, Colorado. So we took out there, and then we continued to photograph the river. The next big canyon is called Cross Mountain Gorge, and it's unraftable um, above about 2,500 cubic feet per second. So we skipped that, but we did photograph the 65,000-acre Cross Mountain Ranch, which um, is now being protected with conservation easements by the Bodecker family from California. So on either side of Cross Mountain Gorge, which is BLM Wilderness Study Area, is this ranch, and the ranchers have the ethic that means that the river itself will get protected forever. There'll be no pickup trucks in the banks. The cows won't be allowed to overgraze and cause erosion. And then after Cross Mountain Gorge is Dinosaur National Monument and the classic four-day, three-night trip from Deer Lodge Park down to Echo Park, then through Split Mountain Gorge after the green joins the Yampa and the takeout near Vernal, Utah. You know, what amazes me about it are some of these canyons that you're talking about. To drift through the canyon, the lighting must be amazing, and to watch it change as, you know, the sun sweeps across the sky, that's got to be a photographer's paradise. Well, canyons are challenging for photographers, so here's a tip for all uh, boating photographers in canyons is, uh, camp at an east-west segment of the river um, because canyons can be deep and steep a la Yampa Canyon and Dinosaur National Monument, which is well over 2,000 feet high. If you're on a northwest segment of the river, the sun is um, left and right of you and never actually gets into the bottom of the canyon until later in the morning or early in the afternoon. And your photographers that are listening know that that's one of the challenges with even digital cameras that have uh, up to 13 stop 
dynamic or contrast ranges that when you have deep shadow and bright highlight at sunrise and sunset on the top of the canyon walls, that can be difficult for the camera to pick up the detail both in the shadows and the highlights simultaneously. So when I camp, because I, I tend to photograph from camp at sunrise and sunset, I look for stretches of rivers, you know, that are oriented east-west so that the setting sun and the rising sun, you know, are actually shining down into the canyon early in the day and, and late in the day. Uh, sounds delightful. So what are the, some of the challenges of doing photography on a river? I mean, you got to keep your equipment dry somehow. You're on a, a raft that's bouncing around. How, how do you manage all that? Well, if your listeners pick up a copy of my Yamper River book, they'll see all of this wildlife and um it's not easy with a Canon 5DSR, which is the new 50 megapixel camera and a 600 millimeter lens to photograph eagles and hawks and herons in the distance while the raft is actually spinning. So I highly recommend that you get a driver for your boat and you just sit in the back. I was solitary, which meant I had to drive the boat and at the same time keep it from spinning and then pick up on the wildlife all around me. Um, dry bags, you know, or river equipment that we use for all of our gear to make sure that if we flip or or get uh, into big rapids and holes that uh, camera equipment doesn't get wet. Um, but that means if you put it in a dry bag, it's hard to get to. So, you know, I've learned how to manage um, both my SLR equipment on the river and especially one-third of all the photos that I've shot on this project and, and that I shoot for everything today is done with a, a very small cigarette pack-sized a Lumix point-and-shoot. It's called the LF-1, and it's 28 to 200 millimeters. And many of the photos in the book and the project are made with this point-and-shoot, which is easy to manipulate on a fast-flowing river. And if it gets wet, you know, that's only 300 bucks down the tubes instead of a few thousand. So that sounds really awesome. It, what size aperture do you get out of a camera like that? The uh, point-and-shoot Lumix goes from f 2.8, to f8 um, but because depth of focus is a function of the relationship between the physical size of the aperture and the physical length of the lens f8 is more like f16 on an slr so i can do great depth of focus photos which are um there are a lot of those in the book where i'm able to hold the point and shoot an inch or two or three or four from claret cup magenta colored cactus flowers and um almost have my canyon walls at infinity still in focus handheld at F8 because F8, like I said, is more like F16. But, you know, when I do these river trips, I take the SLR and the tripod, and when I'm at camp at night and in the morning, that's what I use, not the point-and-shoot because I have the time and the freedom to set up the big camera on the tripod, put on the 16-35mm to 35 millimeter zoom lens, stop down to F22, um, focus at my hyperfocal distance manually, and make sure that everything from 14 inches to infinity is so sharp and in focus. Well, I tell you what, John, your pictures are among the best pictures I've ever seen. I love going to your site and just kind of scrolling through them and seeing how you captured the light and, and the angles and I just everything, the composition. I, I really enjoy your photography a lot, and I just want to say thank you for the years that you've spent developing that art form and then sharing it with the rest of us because I think you have brought nature to people in a way that um, few people can do, and it's a it's a beautiful thing and a great contribution. Well, it's a symbiosis. I wouldn't be doing what I was doing if you and 
your listeners hadn't been buying my books and calendars and fine art, fine art prints from my gallery in the art district on Santa Fe Drive in Denver. Um, it, it takes two to tango, and you know I love the symbiosis between what I do and what I enjoy, and being able to share what I get to see that most people will never get to see. You know, all within mind, um, getting people to care about. Uh, sharing for the future and future generations these remarkable things that we get to see. So thanks for the pat on the back. <laughs> well, you deserve it. Holy cow. So I, I w- was going to ask a question. I've been uh, wanting a camera that I can take into the wilderness with me that I don't have to have a llama to carry, right? And I've been doing most of my photography with whatever camera phone I have on hand, and I've been pretty disappointed with the results. What would you recommend for backpackers and wilderness enthusiasts for something that they can take in to capture some really good shots that's not going to break the weight bank? Well, there's three possibilities in between the iPhone and uh, the full SLR. Um, first is the cigarette-sized, cigarette-pack-sized camera that I'm talking about that I think your listeners know, which are these point-and-shoots, whether power shots from Canon or larger ones like the uh, G-Series from Canon or the Lumix um, that I use. But all the camera companies have them. But they're basically very small. They have focal lengths, optical focal lengths, anywhere from 24 to sometimes 600 millimeters. And yet still are these small cameras that you can put in your pocket for skiing or for on a river rafting craft. And they will... Some of them are up to 20 megapixels these days and have f2.8 to f8 apertures, and that's enough to really make images that are anywhere up to maybe 75% of the quality of the sensors that you get on bigger SLRs. The next step up from that would be point-and-shoots that don't have removable lenses, but they're a little bit larger than what I described, more the size and the look of an SLR that... um, maybe have larger sensors, more megapixels, but have bigger, longer zoom lenses that are built into the camera that might have a focal length, again, from 24 millimeters up to 600 or 700, um, which, you know, are wonderful and probably going to give you a little better quality than the cigarette pack-sized cameras. And then finally, there's this new genre of mirrorless mirrorless cameras that are slightly smaller than single-lens SLR reflexes and Sony I think has led the way there and they even make one now that's 42 megapixels which is not much much less than my 50 megapixel Canon 5DSR um, where you have interchangeable lenses but the lenses and the camera itself are smaller than my own SLR and uh, and again you get the choice of massive sensors for all of that detail which frankly is only important if you're going to make big prints like I make from my gallery up to 10 feet long. So those are the three classes that are available in between um, iPhone and, and SLR. Wow. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. 
The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Phoenix Multisport is a sober, active community that supports individuals who are healing from substance use disorder by providing free programs to help them maintain their sobriety. A few of these programs include CrossFit, yoga, boxing, cycling, and rock climbing, and are offered to anyone who is 48 hours clean and sober. Phoenix Multisport provides programs in Colorado, Orange County, California, and Boston, Massachusetts. For more information on this nonprofit, go to www.phoenixmultisport.org. Together, we can help individuals rise from the ashes of their addiction and heal families. Almost every person we've interviewed is trying to document what they're doing somehow. They're all using cameras. And it seems to be a pretty common thing with people who love adventure sports. They want to take pictures so they can take a part of that experience home with them and share it with family and friends. And so anyway, it's just fascinating, the photography world that goes along with adventure sports. So that's one of the reasons why I am really excited to have you on the show so you can talk that language for all of these people who love photography. Well, let me... uh... Uh, I'll conclude the mechanical side of our discussion with this, that uh, two things. If you can't see it, you can't photograph it, and that means it's all about the eye, not about the camera. And I've seen eight-year-old children with disposable cameras make better photos than adults with um, $10,000 worth of gear. So, Mm. again, my point is that in the end, um, the brain and the eye and your ability to isolate the order out of the chaos in the 180-degree purview that we see through our eyes is still what separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls, the great photographers from the average photographers. The equipment is almost irrelevant. So there really is an artist behind the art. There's art, and actually, speaking of that, art is 50% of good photography. The other 50% is being at the right place at the right time, and those two ingredients are equal proportion. And obviously, the more that you are outdoors enjoying the things that we've been talking about, um, the more that you're going to be at the right place at the right time. That's just another great excuse for getting out there. I love it. Um, As As if we need it. Yeah, exactly. So you have over 40 books published now with photography, and I own several of them, and I've enjoyed them over the years. I especially have enjoyed John Your Calendars because it allows me to have you know a year's worth of pictures that I can go through in my daily schedule. So as I reach for it to try to keep up with the crazy life that we all have to live these days, I get that that dose of nature right there. But what was it like to spend you know 35 years putting together these books? I'm very lucky to be able to make my living from the out of doors and uh, 
that's why I'm an environmentalist. It's my method by which I can give back for the joy of um, what I've been able to do for a living. And by that, I mean working with nonprofit uh, conservation groups and environmental organizations to uh, let them use my photos to raise money from my book sales and print sales to um, allow them to protect the very places that I'm photographing. And in a sense, it's almost selfish. You know, if I don't have places to photograph, I can't make my living. So why wouldn't I want to support people and organizations that want to um, protect biodiversity um, on Earth? But, you know, the bottom line is, for your listeners that want to make a living out of video or photography or just out of the out of doors in one way or another, um, what separated me from the pack were my business skills. Um, I was very blessed with a background that included a degree in accounting, a first career in the department store business, business where I developed my merchandising skills. And without that business sense and the sense for salesmanship, I never could have published what is now about 50 books and been able to make a living for 35 years out of being outdoors and with the um, cameras. So it's so critical that uh, creative people also develop a sense for how to effectively share what they do with, with other people. And that's my attitude. You know, it's about sharing, even though it's a money thing, too. You know, you've always got to feel like you're making somebody's life better by sharing with them um, your product, your art form. And that's what's carried me through thick and thin. Well, John, back in Episode 7, you talked about um, photo workshops that you do. Are you still doing those? Doing more than ever. Um, I do them on my own account. Um, in 2016, I'll be in the usual places, Crested Butte for wildflower photography in July, Telluride for autumn photography in October, Summit County, where I live for spring photography. I'll be in the Gunnison Gorge rafting for three days. Um, doing canyon photography and and then I've added uh, to benefit nonprofit organizations this year um, <clears throat> the Colorado Native Plant Society is going to be selling 16 spaces for a wildflower workshop I'll be doing in Steamboat Springs and Route County in July <clears throat> I'll do a workshop for Denver Botanic Gardens in the Chatfield Roxborough State Park area at the end of October to photograph fall color in southwest um, Denver area to raise money for them and uh, several others others so yeah I like I like sharing what I've learned over the years with other people and uh, it's part of the way I make my living but it's also part of the way that um, I'm able to perpetuate the, the art form of nature photography and pass it on to others. So if people want to be a part of these events, uh, where do they go to find out more information? Johnfielder.com is the clearinghouse for everything from viewing a thousand of my photos to learning where I'll be doing my next uh, musical slideshow or symphony collaboration or talk to uh, information about my gallery in, in Denver to information, price, and logistics, and dates for all of my photo workshops. Well, John, it's such a, a fun thing to visit with someone who has had a lifetime doing the work that he loves in nature. Um, for our guests who would love to do something similar, do you have a word of advice for us? Yes. Uh, you know, good photography it's not about the camera. It's about your subject matter and whether you're a portrait photographer, a photojournalist photographing the field of battle in Afghanistan, um, a people photographer like an Annie Leibovitz or a nature photographer like an Ansel Adams or an Elliot Porter. Um, it's all about the subject matter. If you have a passion for what you're photographing, um, that's far more important than just having fun snapping shots and 
change in settings on um, cameras. So for nature photographers and outdoors people, be a naturalist. Appreciate how lucky we are to be sentient beings on a planet, in a solar system, in a galaxy, in a universe, in a multiverse. And with that attitude, you'll enjoy your outdoor experiences more and you'll make far better photos. Hmm, that's great. You know, I, I've i totally skipped over my favorite question, John, but i got to bring us back to the Yampa here. In all of this uh, exploration of this 200 and, what was it, 49 miles, um, something had to go wrong. Give us a good when time, when things didn't go right story. Um. Well, I'll give you kind of a, uh, let's see, similar. You know, I didn't really have any uh, big issues, but I did play one practical joke on tourists. If you want to <laughs> okay. hear that? Sure. So your listeners might know the Devil's Causeway. Above oh, yeah. Stillwater Reservoir, um, southwest of the town of Yampa, which is one of those dams I mentioned that doesn't really affect the free-flowing nature of the river, is a loop trail to the Devil's Causeway, which is a... Um, sandstone wall with 200 foot vertical drops on either side and at one point it's only two feet wide and it's about a 50 yard traverse and people do this loop and half of them have the guts to go across the precipice and the rest of them chicken out and uh, I was with Pat and Gus and and Hector the two llamas and I decided to um, see how um, tourists would react to me pretending to take the two llamas across the Devil's Causeway. <laughs> so with full packs, 85 pounds of gear each, I had them tethered together, and I approached the Devil's Causeway and went partways out on it. And once the tourists started shrieking and calling me crazy and an animal abuser, I turned around and went back um, because I wasn't going <laughs> to go across. <laughs> anyway, so that was one of the funnier moments during the project. <laughs> I could just see it. I have been across the Devil's Causeway, and it's it's uh, an attempt getter for sure pretty yeah, airy if you want to look at it this way that was my biggest defeat i wasn't able to get the llamas across the devil's causeway <laughs> last time we talked you mentioned off air that there is a time that a llama tumbled down a snowfield. you know uh, if the society for the prevention of cruelty to animals is listening tonight i'm not sure i want to tell that story but uh, <laughs> i don't think they know where i live so uh just uh, briefly uh, i will say that I did set the world record for uh, the number of full frontal llama flips at three in 2002 in the West Elk Wilderness of Colorado. <laughs> and you mentioned that the llama did stand up and, and walk away from that just fine, but I can't imagine how funny that must have been, and scary at the same time, concerned for the animal, but you know... It wasn't funny if uh, something had happened to the animal. That meant I and my cohorts would be carrying an extra 100 pounds of gear. On <laughs> but this llama did set the world record for mid-air full frontal body flips and survived. <laughs> wow. Well, on our last show for the guests, we talked quite a bit about um, packing with llamas in the wilderness, and John gave some great stories about that. So episode seven, if you'd like to hear more about that. And we uh, talked then about how llamas have been a major part of John's photography over the years because they pack in all the heavy equipment gear that he used, especially before the lighter gear became available. So lots of neat stuff back in episode seven. So John, if people want to get your book about the Yampa River, 
or any other of your nearly 50 works now, what's the best way for them to do that? Lots of ways to do that. Um, first, go to my website, johnfielder.com, and you can get a full description of the, all the books and calendars and guidebooks that I've published that are still in print, and uh, you can buy them straight from my website. You can go to amazon.com. You can go to your local bookstore. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Um, they're pretty much available anywhere, so just Google them, the title of them after you see them on my website and figure out how best it is for you to acquire a copy if you want an autograph copy check out my website for my schedule of events we always sell sell and sign my books and calendars at all of my slideshows and speaking events just come to one of those and i'll personally inscribe it for you there or you can come to my gallery at 8th and santa fe in denver and uh, buy a copy and leave it for me to sign the next time that i'm off the trail and down at the gallery do you have any special discounts that you can offer our listeners absolutely um if your listeners will contact my gallery the phone number and contact info is on my website, um, and just tell my gallery folks that uh, they heard me on uh, the Adventure Sports Podcast with Kurt, um, that I will give them 15% off any books, calendars, note cards, even photographs off, your, off the wall, and we'll trust them that they heard this podcast. 15% off, and those photographs on the wall are something else. Wow. Well, if they buy a $3,000 photo, that's uh, $450 savings. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'd be making money, not losing money. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, John, thank you very much for that. And I know that our listeners appreciate it, too. I, I love it when our guests are able to give something back to the listeners. And uh, that's it's a way that we like to say thank you for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. So that's fun. Well, John, will you close this out with an inspirational story? Um. I can only think of my greatest wildlife experience ever in the Wamanuchi Wilderness. And uh, I think it was 2004 when I spent 24 hours with the wildest, most remote billy goat in all of Colorado. <laughs> um, started out with he and I kind of facing off against each other. You know, goats love to, they need salt like all creatures. So they look for backpackers urine. So the goat came up to the campsite when he saw the five of us and started licking our urine for the salt. When he was done, I, I did an experiment to see who was the toughest male in the wilderness, me or the, the 250-pound marbled with nothing but muscle. Billy Goat, um, he won the, he won the uh, competition. Um, <laughs> someday I'll write about it. But the following day, I was under the dark cloth of my large format 4x5 view camera at 6 a.m. in the morning at a on a ridge at 13,100 feet, above, and it was just above our campsite, about a half mile away, photographing, uh, going to photograph first light on Vestal and Arrow Peaks, which are almost 14ers in the Trinity Alps of what's called the Grenadier Range of the Wemenuchi Wilderness. And I've got my large format camera focused and the composition design with wildflowers in the foreground, the peaks in the background, just waiting for that first pink light. And I hear clump, clump, clump behind me, and here comes that goat from the day before. He walks right around me, lays down in the middle of my scene and the flowers 10 feet in front of me. And that was the day that I became a wildlife photographer. <laughs> I held perfectly still. I made an F45 one-half-second exposure that's perfectly sharp. People can see it on my website. If they just put into the search box, uh, goat, they'll see a number of shots of that goat. But after the photography session, I went back to camp to pick up my gear. And then I went over the ridge, left my companions and to do my duty. 
And after doing my duty, I saw the goat about uh, 40 yards away. He was laying down in an alpine tundra meadow. I went up to the goat. He allowed me to lay down prone with my head on my hand, my elbow on the ground next to him, 18 inches away. And I spent the next 30 minutes talking to the goat, asking him, what was it like to be in the wilderness 24-7? What were girl goats like? And he never answered any of my questions, but he literally let me talk to him. And I think my voice somehow did not threaten him. And then after 30 minutes, I felt like I had overstayed my welcome. I got up and went back to camp, got my backpack, and the six of us headed on to the next alpine drainage at 13,000 feet. The goat followed us for about 100 yards, and then for whatever reason, after 24 hours, it had enough of us. And we headed right to the next alpine cirque, and he went left um, back down to Elk Creek, and that was the last I saw with Mr. Goat. (laughs) That's a beautiful story. You know, it's so rare to be able to interact with wildlife like that. But every time I have an experience where you have that special moment, um, just driving this week, a raven decided to fly at the same speed I was driving down our canyon and uh, just about 20 feet above me. And I could watch how he would move every little feather to, to adjust the glide of his flight. And, you know, what you're talking about with this goat, of course, is a much bigger experience. But those sorts of experiences are just magical. And, we are lucky to be alive. Oh, yeah. You, you see that and you go, wow. You know, it's just so rare and so beautiful. And, uh, John, thank you very much for sharing that experience with us. You're welcome, Kurt. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, one more time, I'm going to tell the listeners about this book, Colorado's Yampa River, Free Flowing and Wild from the Flat Tops to the Green, 149 Miles. It's documented, and you can see everything that John's been talking about here and learn a lot more about free-flowing rivers and how important they are for our planet and I think even for what it means to be human. So, John, thank you very much for being on the show today. You're welcome, Kurt. Thanks for having me. All right, and for all of our listeners out there, until the next show, get out there and have some fun and take a picture while you're at it. Did you know that you can do a lot to help grow our show, and we would really appreciate it? Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate us there, leave a review. You wouldn't believe what a difference that makes. Thanks!